Good morning. Welcome to The Point, the radio ministry of Life Point Baptist Church of Early Texas. Life Point meets for Sunday school at 10 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m., and we meet at the Early Chamber of Commerce at 104 East Industrial Drive in Early. That's just off of Highway 377 next to Pates Hardware. You can find more information on us by logging on to point2life.wordpress.com. You can also look us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash point2life. This morning, we'll continue our study through the Bible, and we'll go to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses, and said unto him, I am the Lord, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant." Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it you for an heritage. I am the Lord. And Moses spake so unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Go in. Speak unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. How then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, and gave them a charge unto the children of Israel and unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children, out of, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt." In Exodus, the last chapter we studied, chapter 5, Pharaoh asked a question. He said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? And when Pharaoh asked that question back in Exodus chapter 5, he wasn't asking out of curiosity. He wasn't asking trying to obtain more knowledge about God. He was indeed challenging God's authority. He didn't say, who is this God you speak of? Tell me more about him. I want to know more. I want to know him. That wasn't Pharaoh's question. When Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? He was challenging God's authority. In essence, he was saying, who does God think he is? Or he might have been asking, how is your God relevant to my life? Now, over the next several chapters, God demonstrates his power and authority over Pharaoh. He systematically destroys Pharaoh's kingdom using creatures his kingdom worships and then using some creatures that they despise. Pharaoh's only recourse is to ask God for mercy. And so here we are in Exodus chapter 6, and God will start the process of 
rescuing his people from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 6, God reminds Moses who he is and tells Moses to go tell Pharaoh and the people who he is. So in Exodus chapter 6, God shows up. Pharaoh's question on the table is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? And in Exodus chapter 6, God begins to tell Pharaoh just exactly who he is that that Pharaoh should have to let the Israelites go. In chapter 6, God reminds us of three of his attributes, three things that God reminds us about here in chapter 6. First thing is that he is all-powerful. Second thing, that he keeps his promises. And the third thing that God reminds us of here in Exodus chapter 6 is that God hears our cries. So first, let's talk about this attribute of God being all-powerful. God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. In verse 2, God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Notice that God said that he is the Lord. The. That article indicates a particular, one of a kind. This is the only one. I am the Lord. God didn't say, I am a Lord. God didn't say, I am one of many lords. He said he is the Lord. The Egyptians were a polytheistic society, which means they worshipped many gods or idols. And Pharaoh thought that he was one of these gods. And this was very common in ancient cultures for the king to think that he was a god. And Pharaoh ruled this kingdom that worshipped many little g gods, many idols. And Pharaoh himself thought that he was a god. And so when he asked a question back in Exodus chapter 5, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He is saying, look, I'm a god too. I don't have to sit here and mind other gods. I am one of the divine. Pharaoh had some issues, didn't he? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The Lord shows up and says, I am the Lord, the only God. This statement declares that there are no other gods besides the Lord. When God said, I am the Lord, he is saying that there are no others, which means that Pharaoh isn't who he thinks he is. Now, there's a lesson for us here. First of all, the first lesson we take from this is that there is only one God. And we have gone over this in the uh, past several weeks on this program. This one God created everything. And having created all things, he created the world. He created everything in the world. So he created the world. Therefore, he owns the world. Therefore, he makes the rules. And so there is only one God, and he is in control of all things, and he rules all things, and it's his authority that we submit to. Second, Second thing we learn from this is that there are no other gods. There are no vice gods. There are no demigods. You know, you study uh, Greek mythology, they believe that there were demigods. These were people who were half god, half man. And there were apparently a bunch of them in ancient Greek mythology. There is no such thing as a half man, half god. Now, you think of uh, Jesus. He is all man and all god. He's 100% god. He's 100% man. And it can be hard to uh, figure that part out, but Jesus was not a demigod. Jesus is God in flesh, and there is a difference there. And so we learn that there are no other gods besides God. There's not God is high on his throne, but there are a bunch of intermediary gods. Those things don't exist. There is only one God, and that is our Heavenly Father God. 
the Heavenly Father and the uh, Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the God that appeared to us in the form of a man through Jesus Christ, the God who interacts with us through the Spirit, through his Holy Spirit. There's only one God. And there being only one God, there can only be one religion, one true religion. God is God. He is who he is. He says this many times in the scriptures, I am that I am. And when he says, I am that I am, he is declaring that he is a being who has a personality, who has likes and dislikes, and has a will and a purpose, and that is singular. He has one will, one purpose. He is one being. He doesn't have multiple personalities. There is a popular mentality in the world today that says there is one God, but he expresses himself different ways to different cultures, to different individuals. There is no support for that concept in the Bible. The Bible does not tell us that God has multiple personalities and that he expresses himself differently to different cultures and different peoples. That is not a biblical concept. That is a concept that man came up with in an attempt to unite the religions of the world, but the religions of the world cannot be united because the religions of the world have completely different sets of values, have completely different uh, sets of ideas, have completely different understandings of God, and have completely different understandings as to where we are as a human race and where we are headed as a human race. So you don't have one God who expresses himself to the Christians this way, to the Muslims this way, to the Hindus this way, to the Buddhists another way, uh, to the... uh, to the Confucius another way, to the Rastafarians another way. You don't have one God putting on many different masks and appearing to different peoples in different ways. That does not happen. It is not biblical. Not only is it not biblical, but it is not reality. Okay, there is one God. And being one God means that there is one divine being that has one divine personality, one divine will, and therefore there can only be one true religion. Only one religion today truly worships God, and that religion is Christianity. The second thing that we learn from God's opening statement here, that he is the Lord. The second thing we learn from that is that we are not gods. While that may seem obvious, A lot of people act like they're a God. We are in no position to define morality. God did that in the scriptures. Morality is not defined by mankind. Morality is defined by God. So we're not in a position here to say that, to determine whether or not something is right or wrong, or to try to change social mores to accept certain things as being moral or certain things to be immoral. If God has deemed it unlawful, if God has deemed it immoral, then it is immoral. There is an absolute morality. C.S. Lewis wrote about it in the book Mere Christianity. He called it the natural law. There are certain things that we all know to be wrong, that we all know to be evil. Walking up and murdering a man in the street, every culture in the world sees that as being evil. Why? Because it is in the natural law written in our hearts that murder is evil. The same thing is true for stealing. The same thing is true for lying. The same thing is true for adultery and uh, and sexual relations outside of marriage. All of these are things that are in the natural law, that are in that universal uh, 
mindset, that universal understanding of what is right and wrong. And who wrote that? Who designed that? God designed it. We are in no position to define morality. We are in no place to judge. Now, when I talk about judging, I'm not talking about preaching against sin or letting somebody know that the activity that they're engaged in is sinful. I'm talking about condemning people. I'm talking about deciding that these individuals don't deserve to know the Lord, that these individuals are not worthy of the help and the benevolence that our Lord teaches that we should uh, share on others. We are in no place to judge. God is the judge. Our life's purpose is determined by God, not us. Therefore, we are to submit to God, to honor him, to trust him, and to worship him, because we ourselves are not gods. And so those are a couple of things we learned from uh, from God's statement to Moses as he's preparing Moses to go talk to Pharaoh. God says, I am the Lord, the one and only Lord, the one and only God, the one and only creator God. And notice that God said he is the Lord, the all-powerful creator. We need to remember that. God is the all-powerful creator, which means that nothing is impossible with God. Here's Moses. He's talking to God, and God is telling him that he is going to lead the people out of Egypt back into the Canaan land where God will give them that land for a heritage. Now, the Israelites didn't have weaponry. They didn't have military skill. All they were good at at this point was raising animals and making bricks. And the nation of Egypt, Pharaoh, they had military might. They had military skill. They had control of the society. How is Israel going to be freed from Egypt? How are they going to be able to make this exodus? God's going to be in it. And God can make that happen because nothing is impossible with God. You may find yourself in a position where you are suffering from a health problem, where you are suffering from a, uh, a financial problem. Maybe you're dealing with a social situation or a conflict, and your situation may seem impossible. Just remember that nothing is impossible with God. God being the Lord, the all-powerful creator, he's ever-present. He's everywhere. The Bible says that he promised to never leave us or forsake us. He is all-knowing. His ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And he knows more about us than we know about ourselves. And so there's no equal. None other even comes close. So seeing God in this light, what should be our mindset toward God? And so here in Exodus chapter 6, we back up to verse 1. And the Bible tells us, The Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. Here, God tells Moses exactly how things are going to go. The Israelites are not going to have to fight their way out of the land. uh, The Pharaoh is going to fight them. He's going to push them out of the land. And all of this is because of what God was about to do to Pharaoh. And God could do all this and make it happen because of his infinite knowledge and power. You see, God knows you inside and out, and he knows how to bring you to a point of submission. And the harder you fight against God, the harder it's going to be for you. In Acts chapter 9, as Jesus is confronting Paul on the road to Damascus, and Jesus is calling Paul to salvation, Jesus makes an an interesting statement. He says, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The pricks, or the sticks, 
that farmers used. And what they'd do is they'd hook this ox up to their plow, and this ox would pull this plow while this farmer held onto the handle of the plow. And when the ox would quit pulling, the farmer had this long stick where they pointed in that he would stick in that hind quarter of that uh, ox, and that would encourage the ox to continue to move forward. The harder the ox fought against the prick, the more painful the experience was for the ox. And that's the situation with God. The harder you fight against God, the harder it's going to be for you. And so we need to realize who God is, recognize his sovereignty, recognize his power, recognize his wisdom, and we need to submit to him. He is the only God. There are no other options for divinities or religions, at least not ones that work. We are to follow God. And this is a good thing because God is a God who is a compassionate God, and he's a God who keeps his promises. Let's talk about God keeping his promises. After God shows back up in chapter 6 and appears to Moses and says, I am the Lord, notice what he says in verse 3. He says, And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. God is recalling how he appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembers them. He remembers them as individuals. He remembers their names. He remembers his conversations with them. He remembers the promises that he made to them. God knows you by name. He knows you by name, and he remembers the plans that he has for you. You know what? God sees you. God sees you. He sees you. And he knows who you are, and he loves you. In fact, you go back to the book of Genesis, and uh, you read about Hagar. You remember Hagar. She was Sarah's maidservant. Sarah and Abraham were married. God had promised them a child, and the child wasn't coming. They were getting older in age. Sarah, who was barren, who couldn't have children, she was beyond childbearing years, and as time went on, that was only going to get worse. Abraham was aging as well. The Bible tells us that uh, in the book of, I think it's Hebrews chapter 11, where he says he considered not the deadness of his flesh. So that tells you a little bit about Abraham's ability to father children. It was uh, fading at that uh, particular time. So they decided to take matters into their own hands. And so Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham to take as kind of a second wife as a, as a, uh, the, the Bible uses the term concubine. This was a young lady that uh, belonged to the master that was kind of like a wife to him, but she wasn't the head wife. So she got uh, none of the authority that the, that his, the wife of his youth had. And so Hagar kind of gets used and abused during this whole situation. She winds up, uh, she winds up giving birth to a child named Ishmael. And then she despises Sarah because of what's happened to her. Sarah has Abraham throw Hagar out. The thing was grievous in the sight of Abraham. He didn't like what had happened, but he wound up throwing Hagar out nonetheless. And Hagar finds finds herself in a place where she's out in the wilderness and, and there's nothing for her. And God brings her attention to a well that's nearby so that she can have water and her son can have water. And he sustains them. And Hagar named that place a an ancient hebrew word that means god has seen me or god sees me you take hagar who was in her day considered at the bottom rung of society and yet she knew that god saw her god sees us as well he knows who you are he knows your background he understands the pain and the messed up things that have happened to you he understands all this he remembers you and he knows the plans that he has for you God 
calls to mind Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he remembers them. God's words here in Exodus chapter 6 to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were passed down through the generations. He's reminding Moses of the words that were spoken to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses had most likely been taught God's word as a child. The word that God had delivered to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was uh, very likely taught to Moses as a child. And here God says that that word is coming true, which reminds us that the word of the Lord is to be believed and trusted. Now that's not redundant. To believe the word means to know that it will happen. To trust the word means to believe that you will benefit. And so to believe the word is to believe that God exists, to believe that Jesus existed, exists, still exists, to believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. To believe that. That's what it means to believe the word. To trust the word means that when Jesus died on that cross and he resurrected the third day, he died for your sins on the cross. And he rose again the third day to give you personally eternal life. You see, if you believe it happened for the world, but not for you, then you know the truth, but you don't trust the truth. You're not trusting the Lord for salvation. To trust means to believe that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin on that cross and that he purchased your salvation on that cross. And that's what salvation is. That's what brings salvation is trusting that Jesus Christ redeemed you personally when he died on that cross. Any faith that falls short of that falls short of the cross and falls short of salvation. Any faith that says, I have to do this or I have to do that in order to be saved is placing the faith in yourself instead of Christ. So to believe means to know it will happen. To trust means to believe that it will benefit you. And so God indicates to Moses that the destiny of Moses and his people will be tied to that of the patriarchs. And in verse four, God goes on and says, and I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land of, pil- of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this covenant was that God would give their descendants the land of Canaan for a heritage. God will keep that promise. The day is coming when the Lord will re- return to this earth and establish his kingdom on earth, and we'll see that promise restored and that promise kept once and for all. But God has made a covenant with us too. And that covenant is that since he died on the cross for our sins, if we turn from our sin and trust him as Savior, he will save us. And he's also made the covenant that those of us who are saved, those of us who know him as Savior, are grafted into the promises that God made to Israel regarding that future kingdom and regarding that future land. Now, back in the days of Abraham, God promised to deliver Israel from Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 6, he's about to deliver on that promise. In verse 8, he says, I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for an heritage. I am the Lord. And so God was about to deliver on a promise that he had made hundreds of years earlier to the Israelites' forefathers. God has made promises to us as well. He's promised us salvation by grace through faith. He's promised to be present in our lives. He has promised to heal us, not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. And he has promised us future deliverance. One day, this that we are looking at in our world, our world with all of the violence, with all of the social unrest, with all of the upheavals, with all of the threats of war 
and threats of nuclear annihilation, all the CNN news alerts that scare the daylights out of you, and everything else, we are promised that one day we will be delivered from all this, and we will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. That's if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And so we're talking about God this morning. We're talking about how he's all-powerful. We've just gotten through talking about how he keeps his promises. If you read the scriptures and you see the promises that God makes in the scriptures, you can trust those and you can know that if you accept him as your Lord, as you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, those promises apply to you as well. The last thing I want to talk to you about today is that God hears our cries. God hears our cries. I've already told you that God sees you. I've already told you that God saw Hagar, that God saw the people. Not only does he see you, he understands what you're going through. We look in verse 5. God says in Exodus chapter 6, verse 5, I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. God heard the groaning of the children of Israel. Notice that God did not say that he had heard their prayer. He said that he had heard their groaning. You see, God heard the sounds of their pain, and he had heard their cries before they lifted their situation up to him in prayer. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not saying we should de-emphasize prayer, Prayer is still a vital component to the faith-filled life. It's still a vital component to the Christian life. It is still how you stay connected with God and how you interact with God and how you speak with God. Prayer is important. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. The Bible says to let your requests be made known unto God with prayer and supplications, to go to the Lord with your concerns, to go to the Lord with your hurts, to go to the Lord with your request. I'm not de-emphasizing prayer here at all. But notice that God says that he heard their groanings. So this was not prayers that he was hearing. This is groanings. This is the sound of pain. This is the sound of their cries. And when God says that he heard their groanings, he's hearing their cries. He knew their suffering. He understood that they were suffering. The word uh, know has a connotation that there's an experience level there. God understands pain. He knows our pain. He hears our cries. He knows our pain. He hears our groaning. He hears our cries even before we pray about it. He understands our pain. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Lord Jesus Christ was in all points tempted like as we are. Jesus Christ lived the human experience. And Jesus, being God in flesh, conveyed that to God the Father. So God knows our pain. He understands our pain. He hears our cry. He understands it. And not only does he hear it and understand it, but he responds to it. Just as a parent responds to a child who is crying because they fell off of their bicycle. All right, God responds to pain. He responded to the pain of the Israelites by leading them out of bondage, leading them out of Egypt, leading them into the promised land. He'll respond to your pain as well. But still, pray about it. Verse 6 God says, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. In response to their suffering, God promised redemption, being taken from bondage and being restored as a nation. God will redeem you too if you repent and you trust him. 
God will lift you up from the depths of your despair, and he will give you dignity, he will give you strength, and he will give your life purpose if you will turn from your sins and trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And as you ascend out of this hopelessness into the bright, shining hope that God gives, don't worry about revenge on those who mistreated you along the way. God's got you covered. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, said the Lord, I will repay. And then in verse 7, God says, And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Here, God is making a couple of huge promises. First, to be their God. Now, in ancient cultures, people saw their gods as defenders and providers. If you won the war, it was because your God beat the other guy's God. And if the crops were bountiful, it's because you pleased your God. So here, the only true God is promising to be God of the Israelites. This is more than a promise to be a deity that they could worship. God was promising to be their protector, and he was promising to be their provider. And God wants to be your protector and your provider as well. So trust him. The second huge promise that God makes in this verse is the desire for Israel to be his people. That would give them the advantage. The only true God would be the God of the Israelites. But God also wanted to dwell with them. Hence, he ordered the building of the tabernacle once they got out into the wilderness. He wanted to dwell among his people. This is different from the other cultures who only had statues. God wants to be in your life as well. God is all-powerful. He keeps his promises, and he knows you completely. Trust him. Turn to him and let him into your life. LifePoint meets for Sunday school at 10 a.m., morning worship at 11 a.m., and we meet at the Early Chamber of Commerce at 104 East Industrial Drive in Early. We'd like to welcome you to our services today and would love it if you'd come visit with us. May God bless you and may God keep you will always be our prayer.